Welcome everybody. Here I am with a absolutely wonderful new guest, Koshin Paley Ellison. And as I say many is a time when I start talking to somebody, I'm actually meeting them for the first time. Although I know about you, Koshin, uh, because of we have mutual friends, which we haven't even discussed oh, in, in the Buddhist world, and maybe even a couple of Hindus we might be friendly with together. <laughs> uh, Koshin um, is the founder uh, with a partner of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful organization that does a lot of work with people who are passing and ill and so on. And we're going to get to that. But before any of that, um, I'd like to ask you, just in coming up and growing up in this world, I ask all of our guests this same thing. Just what were what were the, some of the things that cropped up in your life that gave you the transformational fulcrums, shall we say, to move into the area that you are in now and move onto the path. And um, I, I tell people how horribly depressed I was as a teenager, and I was looking, what in the heck is this all about? And why do I feel like this? And what is this culture? And blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't even American, by the way. I'm from Montreal. I'm Canadian. <laughs> So it wasn't quite as bad, maybe. Uh, So, yeah, go ahead. A little bit about uh, who you were before these uh, triggers of transformation came about. Yeah, so I grew up, well, first of all, it's lovely to meet you and, uh, and see you. And I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, My father was, and my mother and father grew up in Brooklyn. And my father was part of the war on poverty in the late 60s Mm. and was one of the few fellows who ended up being chosen to work with poor people um, who are struggling um, and being an advocate for them. And they moved him to Syracuse. And that's why I was born there. Mm. And I grew up in, you know, intellectually curious Jewish um, household with um, lots of curiosity. And so we used to go a lot to come down to the city and see the Met. And I loved the, as a little kid to the Asian wing of the Metropolitan Museum. And just sitting in front of those Buddhas was just for me, transformational. And when I was around, uh, eight years old, my grandfather used to collect National Geographic's and he was showing me the latest one and it had this thing about Tokyo and we're looking at the different pictures of the buildings. There was this one picture of this monk who was wearing the begging outfit called Takahatsu and you could just see his smile under the hat. And all the people around him were blurred in the photograph. And I was so entranced by this stillness. 
as this little boy with my grandpa, my grandpa George. And I just remember like leaning in and looking at it and reading Zen Buddhist monk. And I thought, I'd like to grow up to be like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I told my mother when I got home from my grandfather's house, I want to grow up to be a Zen Buddhist monk. Usually it's a fireman, though. (laughs) Or a spaceman. (laughs) And my mother was, you know, as she was, just a very open person and was very like, great, (laughs) why not? And, uh, but that was a kind of a pivotal moment, I think, for me. And also around that same time, it's kind of interesting that we're talking now because I just remembered this kind of period in my life where in my teens, I was going to the hospital a lot after school because there was, it was the beginning of the 1980s and beginning of the AIDS epidemic and everyone was dying. And my mom's friends, Jerry and Michael were in the hospital all the time and withering away. And it became an ordinary part of our lives, just going to the hospital to spend time with Michael and Jerry and just to spend time with them and play cards and tell jokes and whatever it was and look at their feeding tube. And I was really interested in the whole thing. One of the things that was very painful about that time too was how, both how ordinary it was for us, but noticing how the doctors and nurses were terrified of AIDS at that time and didn't want to touch them and were, you know, making jokes about them. And that we could something different. And I think that was an early um, marker for me. And around that same time, you know, I got very interested in these beat writers. And then I've discovered at 17 that Allen Ginsberg was alive and well and teaching in Colorado. And I thought, wow, I'm going to go to Colorado and meet that guy. And so I made my way to Colorado. <laughs> to How old were you? 17. Wow. <laughs> and was in the summer writing program there. And uh, I met and studied with Alan and all of these people. And it's also where I met my first Zen teacher, who was John Didalori. And he was just this great, you know, regular guy walking down the street, smoking his famous cigarettes. And, uh, and taught me about Zazen. And I started to see just all of these things starting to come together at that time. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, was there any on your, it sounds almost too perfect in a kind of way. You, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be a Zen monk. And then it all just <laughs> happened. There must have been some uh, hardship. Yeah. 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 I mean, there was a lot of, I grew up in my parents' divorce when I was four and, Mm. um, and they didn't know how to do that terribly well. And 
there was a lot of pain in that relationship and and a lot of chaos and that kind of just continued and i saw for myself that they didn't i didn't feel that they knew what to do and i had to figure it out myself and something i just realized the other day was that i really was sure that i had to run away mm. i decided at a certain point like you know what the only option is to run away because it just felt so bad and i didn't know what else to do and i felt like they didn't know what to do and uh but then i decided you know it was actually reading this i was reading all these beat writers and i read zen mind beginner's mind and i remember reading somewhere that there's nowhere to go so i felt that in the midst of all the kind of awful difficulty that i needed to learn how to deal with it and during that time we um I ended up spending a lot of time in the forest that we lived next to. Next to our house was a golf course and beyond the golf course was this forest and I used to skip school and I got really good at um uh, writing notes for my father for the school. And uh <laughs> and go to the forest and lay on the forest ground on these big big peats of moss you know like these huge very spongy moss and um and i felt like that's where i started to learn how to stay and being feeling actually the support of the earth hmm. and and i felt like that everything was spinning and it was the only thing that i used to do during that time that kind of made sense and i think in some ways it was you know scary and um troubling and yet there was this felt like there was a refuge of actually laying on the ground and i used to do that like you know if i even if i didn't if i went to school i would do it after school you know to but i found myself for many days laying there for hours mm. you know and just feeling just breathing and like actually just laying back on that moss i can still feel it you know in the back of my neck those little spongy mm. moss and uh, and i think that many ways that was it was such a difficult time and i felt like i learned something incredible um you know of course now i can say i learned something incredible <laughs> at the Ooh, we have lost you. Oh. Well, we lost you there completely for a minute. You have been Nathan. Just uh, is going to be an edit here. Um, is there anybody else on the internet where you are in the center? That's why I asked if you were in the center because the bandwidth is breaking up. Um, there might be, might be, but I hope it it'll get better. Okay. Uh let um 
I'll pick it up from here just uh, to make Sorry this worth. No, no problem. You were writing uh, notes to get out of school to lie <laughs> down in the moss in the beautiful forest and contemplate and have the uh, the warmth and the support of Mother Earth. Okay? Yes. I was writing notes, too, to get out of school. Were but you? I was doing very bad things, Goshen. You see? Were you? Yeah. <laughs> I was... I was probably going out and, you know, getting beer and going to someone's house and, and we would party or getting in trouble one way or the other. Because I, I remember I got sent to a boarding school because I was so bad. And that's what I mean. I was really, really <laughs> upset about everything. My parents were divorcing too. Uh, mm -hmm. I The whole culture was exploding of course we were getting into a little later or the vietnam war was happening and and right. all of that stuff and it seemed like a mad place all i tried to do was escape every which way i could and right. landed up in all sorts of trouble until until one day actually i saw mayor baba a picture of mayor baba don't worry be happy and i went Shit, I I want to <laughs> please. <laughs> and it was around the time of psychedelics, and of course that then my whole life changed at that point. But you see, right. everybody out there, here's somebody who wrote a note to get out of school and ended up <laughs> meditating with the universe <laughs> as against someone like me. That's all. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. The many many paths, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. to meeting. Yeah. Other... But I think it's also that, you know, my stepmother at the time, you know, she also was on the board of the local Zen center. So, and I also used to go, my dad loved Ram Das, And so I used to go with my dad to see Ram Das oh, really? give talks when he was in town. Mm. So like I was exposed to a lot of really wonderful things mm. as a young person and they were all very appealing to me. So I think that in some ways I was trying to find out how to do it on my own because I didn't know how to. And it wasn't until I met Dido that I felt like, oh, I can be a part of something. I didn't really see how I could be a part of it yet mm. <laughs> that, when I was a teenager. Yeah. Other teachers, some of your other teachers, aside from John. Yeah, so John was, you know, the beginning and then there was a, man named James Hillman, who was um, mm. a mentor to me during that early time, too, because I was used to go to all those men's movement things with him and Robert Bly. And, uh, and it was amazing, because then later in my life, I did Jungian training with James and, uh, and uh, was with him in the end of his life. And, uh, so he was also just a, an incredible person in terms of really learning how to completely be yourself and be really eccentric mm -hmm. and celeb and celebrating being very eccentric. And he was a very eccentric man. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, wow. So many things. Well, you were Other at Naropa. So Trungpa at all? 
Not Trungpa, it's so interesting because, you know, not Trungpa for me, but it was, you know, that's where I met Dido mm, and, uh, right. and Alan, you know, mm. Alan was an amazing teacher for me and to learn the joy of words and play mm. and, and irreverence and reverence and the whole thing. Um, really, he was a super human being. Oh my goodness. Like, and, you know, and my teacher now, um, she's this 87 year old um, loving, you know, her name's Dorothy Friedman. And she was, the, she's Dharma era of Peter Matheson. And, oh my. Oh. And just an incredible, loving, wise being mm. and who I have the privilege of being in a relationship with. And uh, it's extraordinary. Mm. To me, it's about like, I feel like that we're never done with our teachers, you know, that they're always, you know, coming and going and absolutely this lifelong relationship. And my grandmother was probably like my primary teacher. Mm. Yeah, I and I read that uh, that story. I'd love for you to tell this this story um, at the, with the end of of life of your of your grandma and some of the stuff she said to you. And yeah, there's some really lovely stuff there. So, so my grandma, she was, um, you know, Hungarian Jewish lady and. She was married to a man who was quite isolated, and so she became quite isolated. But when she he died, which was around when she was around 81 years old, um, she was going to be alone. And my father and his sister, my Aunt Carol, both wanted her as, as most, you know, it's a very common story that they wanted her to move to where they were so that she could be in assisted living, so that she would be more protected. And it was out of love. And she and I made a pact together that she would stay with me and I would stay with her. And it was the first time I really understood what a commitment was. And it was in my 20s and I was already, you know, practicing, but I feel like in some ways didn't have any idea what practice was. And she taught me about that. It's about completely showing up and the dependability and how much it matters. And she was just this very unusual. She was about five foot tall and she loved getting her hair done, her nails done and and love going to the diner for like the soup special. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> and she loved on Tuesdays, the white bean soup. And, uh, but she, you know, was the kind of person that when you met her, she, and you looked at her, she was really looking at you and she wasn't looking anywhere else. And so many of my friends started to go see her too. And everyone became, really in love with her and everyone called her and loved spending time with her. And so from, you know, the way that it began with, you know, doctor's visits to ambulance rides to 
hospitalizations. And then when she moved into the hospice, we moved in together. And Chodo, you know, my husband and I, we, we took care of her there in the hospice. And she was surrounded by these other friends of ours who are practitioners. And what was extraordinary is that she completely used that time to grow. Mm. She, w- she was really? so deeply curious about changes and how she could change. And probably the most important learning for me was during that time, she woke me up one night and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, grandma, what's, what's wrong? And she was crying. And, uh, and she said, you know, I realized that I'd never really understood that I didn't really love you fully. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, it was actually the whole Buddhist thing. It scared me. And part of me, I'm realizing now, pulled away from you. And I didn't love you completely. And, um, and she said, I'm so ashamed. And yet I'm so grateful that now I just probably have days left to live that I can love you completely now. Because now I understand to love someone is to love all the aspects of them, even though the ones I don't understand or even like. Hmm. And so to me, that she was that kind of woman, you know, Hmm. and who used every ounce to connect and to love. Hmm. Amazing. Hmm. And she was the one who then said, uh, you know, there's, there's something to the Zen thing and something about all these nurses and social workers and doctors. She's like, I think that they could use some training and you and Chota should start a center and something with the Zen part and care and study and bring it all together and to help people. Mm. <laughs> so the, the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, really real founder is Mimi Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> from oh. hungry you know? <laughs> that's so great oh boy love that um i'm also really interested in the jungian depth techniques that you've blended with uh, buddhist psychology talk about that a, a bit i i actually many years ago spent some time with a uh, a jungian therapist he was so amazing Koshin. I mean, he didn't, he, he wasn't down or, well, that's not the right word. He wasn't <laughs> well apprised of the bhakti yoga path, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> and gurus and all that stuff. But you know what he used to say? I'd sit down and I'd, I'd chat, you know, and, and, and go on. And at one point he would go, well, why don't we, why don't we invite Maharaji into the room with us now and meditate with him. Neem Karoli Baba, right? <laughs> and I said, I think to myself, really? <laughs> and we did. And of course, the, the, the massive presence that was there in the moment was so spectacular. And I, I got so much out of just hanging out and 
letting go of so much stuff and and of course doing all of the dream work and and so on and and I'm one who remembers their dreams so it's a, it's it is a powerful method uh, fortunately mm-hmm. and uh, so I've I've always thought that I mean I think I've talked to this uh, about this to Jack Cornfield mm. a lot about how you know, we can mask a lot of shit with our practice <laughs> Or are suddenly being, quote, unquote, we're on the spiritual path, so we no longer have to deal with uh, attachment, anger, greed, lust, the whole nine yards. And uh, and so I think at times, of course, working with the right therapist, now uh, I've talked to Ramdas about this as well. Well, if the therapist is not stuck, then, of course, you have a good chance of really working stuff out. Uh, mm-hmm. So it really depends on that. But talk about your own work in with Jungian depth techniques and, and blending with uh, Buddhist psychology. Well, um, for me, the spiritual bypass that you're talking about, I mm-hmm. think is what inspired me to do this kind of training. And maybe to circle back to it, you know. Um, Talk about that, though, uh, Koshin. What? Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's define spiritual bypass. I did a little bit, but not as well as I'm sure you you will. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so spiritual bypass to me is just about using spirituality to bypass to go around actually something that's actually may be disturbing in ourselves, mm. And for me, being part of spiritual communities for a time, I started to actually quite get quite disturbed by some things that I was seeing. And I felt that <clears throat> for myself to, it just felt like that, I realized that I was starting to see things in myself that I was bypassing. and my own rage and my own insecurities and my own whatever it was. And I really thought, wow, there's there's some time-honored traditions that really are designed to help look at this. And, you know, that's when I kind of reconnected to James and um, started working with uh, Jungian myself and to... And to me, what's so important about the Jungian approach and what I love so much about it in a very kind of basic level is just the imagination and about really working with your imagination and not just so getting stuck in the story of it. But what can I imagine is possible here? And using dream work and using... um, um, really thoughtful and well-trained people um, and working with them for now many years uh, as both supervisors and therapists it's been incredible in terms of like the layers the layers that were never done and to me that the beauty is that we're never done it's like our spiritual practice it's never we're never done I'm not even interested in it being done. It's about, you know, the constant giving and receiving and the fl- being in the flow of, you know, being receptive 
to the moments where we're stuck is most important. Mm, yeah. Um, and further to that, I, I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about how, how we can use that. Don't mind my dogs, by the way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big part of our podcast. <laughs> uh, oh, great. Yeah. Um, what kind are they? Oh, God, there's four of them. There's Labradoodles. And uh, then we have a dog here that my wife brought back from Kenchi, where we met, where I met with Ramdas and Krishnas and others you know, Neem Karoli Baba. We were there visiting uh, four years ago, and suddenly somebody appeared with a puppy. And uh, the long and short of it was it was a female street dog. And in India, that is not good. And so nobody wanted it, and so she brought it back home. We have, we have a, and we, her name is Kenchi. So I'm constantly reminded every day of that wonderful Valhalla in the middle of the foothills of the Himalayas. So yeah, we're lucky. Um, so yeah, along the lines of of using Jungian techniques, it's one of the major things that that we have. All of us have issues with, and by the way, you know many of the people listening here they don't have much interest in becoming uh, Buddhists or Hindu or any any isms. I say this a lot. Uh, the The interest is how do we get balanced here? And we have a whole thing that we're putting together called Life in Balance um, to to try and share as much as we can with teachers like yourself. Getting it more to a down-to-earth, really connective level, and of course, one of the major things that we all have issues is is being in relationship, particularly, and I don't mean romantic relationships, and not even necessarily familial relationships. Mm-hmm. Although those are, of course, that that's a, a primary thing that we all face, but just relationship with those around us on a day-to-day basis, be it at work, be it just in a public place, um, be it on vacation, be it anywhere, where mm-hmm. suddenly um, there is reactive stuff going on from that person, and we are grabbing at that phenomenon, and we mm-hmm. are reacting to it. And yeah. talk about working with relationships. Oh, it's it's so great to talk about it because it's the most important thing, I think. And because we're, I know from myself, you know, getting up this morning and getting into, you know, the local coffee shop and, you know, like you're constantly in relationship. But what I'm noticing more and more is that people are like less and less actually seeing that they're in relationships. And we're on our phones and we are actually almost using everything to not engage. And to me, the beauty is what can happen is if you open your eyes and actually look at the person in front of you and wonder about them. Mm. And to me, there's something very, very energizing about that. And when I am actually walking down the street and like actually noticing who's around the street. I actually really encourage a lot of our folks in our community to do this. We live on this very busy street in Manhattan, 23rd street, it's a cross town street. And, and uh, 
it's a great place to practice because you walk down the street and actually just practice walking down the street. And you'll notice that there are a few other people walking down the street and you recognize each other. <laughs> Everyone else is kind of like in their own world and they're kind of not even really walking down the street. They're just busy. <laughs> and there's these very sweet moments where you recognize the other people walking down the street. And there's this real sweetness. Like the people, you exchange this glance and usually a smile about, oh, you're here too. It's almost like the, that film where the pod people, you know, like where <laughs> the people were not really people. You know, and to me, the, about the restoration of our and the remembering of our own humanity happens when we just are walking when we walk and talking when we talk and actually those basic just practices, right? And just looking at the person you're looking at and doing the next thing. And so to me, the possibility for relationship and intimacy is so vital and actually bring so much vitality when we actually drop our boredom, drop our distraction, and don't feed it, but actually take a look. It's quite exciting mm. to me. Big one is judgment. <laughs> yes. Right? Just walking on the street or in any sort of thing, I find when we talk about in relation, that is the major first thing that, that one needs to drop is that judgmental. I mean, sometimes I look at, you know, the thoughts go through and I have my awareness antennas on and I go, wow, where does that come from? Some of it's easy, you know, a pretty right. girl or whatever it is, but right. some of it is uh, the categorization and judgmental mm -hmm. segmenting that goes on by the mind is... Uh, and and it, and for me, you know what? I end up relaxing because that's the first thing you got to do. No, you just got to relax. I'm human, and isn't it interesting what this mind does? And right. isn't it interesting to note? Geez, I don't. I'm not that mind. I do not have those feelings in my heart right. about anybody. Um, right. So yeah, that that's a that's always been a big thing with me because I notice it all the time, you know, and, huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the other thing, I think you started out saying something that was really, um, key, which is pay attention when you're out there, pay attention so that, that the, the, the eye that you catch that is, Hey, we're here. We're all just here. You can pay attention to that, and I think that's important. And this is probably a good uh, segue into talking about some of the work that you do uh, in contemplative care. And uh, I know that you have three, uh, and I think attention has to be at the very top of the picture when you walk into a room with somebody who is going to pass uh, in, in the near future. And that the kind of a, the way that you have to drop your own um, self-image and uh, all the way to oh uh, I'm going to try and help or any of that stuff, uh, so the attention 
thing that's probably really important. But talk about the three things that uh, you bring up, beginner's mind and witnessing and particularly loving action. So, you know, for us, those are ethics, you know, so beginner's mind and um, bearing witness and loving action are, you know, the basic ethics of being in relationship. And in our work with dying people, you know, they're constantly showing you how important that is. And what's so great, it kind of ties back to your earlier question just about walking down the street in our ordinary life is they're reminding you of actually what, what actually is important, which is attention and engagement, right? And so to me, walking through the threshold of these rooms, and I like to think of them as living rooms because they're the rooms of the living. And to really allow ourselves to have that fresh mind, allow ourselves to drop our story, drop our idea of even what's supposed to happen in the next moment. Um, but I wanna actually, and then the other ideas are bearing witness and to really take it in and loving action. But I wanna tell you a story about what that might look like. Mm. Um, so, Recently, um, I was with a family, and the the person who was dying was um, in the bed in the room, and everyone was quite afraid, and nobody knew what to do about it, and everyone felt like there was something that they should be doing. And see, so kind of, to me, finding myself walking into that room and realizing, like, wow, that's what's going on. Mm. And to me, in my experience, is that there's no, it's not usually an emergency. Dying is not usually an emergency. It's usually our fear that makes it feel like it's an emergency. Right? Mm. And, but actually, there's nothing. The only thing that's emerging is death. <laughs> so the, the only emergency. Um, so learning how to actually just stop and pay attention. And to me, this is the kind of beginner's mind about not having to know how this situation is going to go. Here is this, um, I'll call him Jerry. You know, there's Jerry in the bed and he is 84 years old and there's his wife and his five daughters and they're all terrified and what jerry is saying is keeps whispering over and over and um, i said well what is he saying and they said oh we don't know i said well does everyone was like standing so far away from him because it's almost like this fear of if you get close to death, you'll die too. It's like this kind of almost like superstitious thing that I see very often. Mm. And uh, so I go over to Jerry, and he is saying the same thing over and over again. And uh, and what he said was, "Hold me, mm. hold me." 
So I said, hang on and let his wife and family know that like, actually what he's saying, your brethren are saying is he wants to be held. And they said, oh, well, we're not going to do that. No, isn't that why you're here? Oh, God. And to me, like, wow, you know, how painful is that? And then to realize that maybe possibly they've been a family that they don't touch each other. And that they actually, and then I took a look and actually none of them were touching each other. They're all standing against the wall, but not an ounce of contact. And so I found myself getting and to embrace this man until he took his last breath. This kind of spooning him, actually. Hmm. Hmm. And he said, when I first embraced him, he said, like that. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So I think in some ways is like the, you know, beginner's mind and then just bearing witness and then the loving action is can look so many ways, but I would never have a guess that would have been of what would happen. Yeah. But to me, it was so healing and the family was so moved and, and he felt touched, right? Yeah. That's quite a story. Jeez. I it mean, was very powerful. I imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, isn't it that fear of death is a, this is points this out in such living colors is really a core substream of our inability to make friends with suffering. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is so endemic in this society. It is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, talk a little bit about how to make friends and how to make friends with suffering, but how to, um, shine a light on on one's own fear and everybody has that one's own fear absolutely well to me it's you know in buddhism we have this mythology around this guy who was living a life where he didn't know about it and then he went outside his life and saw an old person a sick person and a dead person and in my mind he probably said you know, holy shit, <laughs> like, I've got to do something. I, I'm completely freaked out. Mm. And uh, and I think in some ways the way to, when we get afraid, is to move towards it. And so to me about learning how to volunteer in your local hospice or learning how to volunteer at, you know, a senior center, so that you can actually get to know these people. And they're just, and they all have names like Jerry and Tom and Sally, and they all have names so that you can actually know the person instead of the idea. Mm-hmm. And so what is it like when Jerry dies? And, and what's it like when Mary gets really sick and you actually go to the hospital and go see her and actually, have an open heart about what well, can they can I 
allow Mary and Jerry and Philip and Akiko to be my teachers around old age, sickness, and death? Can they teach me how it is for them about how to be that? So it's to me, it's about allowing ourselves not to just be afraid of concepts like, ah, you know, I'm scared of that, as opposed to these are things that happen to people. They're not actually abstract. But I think sometimes when we keep it in the abstract, it becomes even scarier. So to me, that's why we can extend our compassion and get to know people who are frail and vulnerable. Because that's yeah. where we're all we're all headed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> we can be sure of that. Yeah. yeah. Roshi Joan Halifax said uh, at one of these retreats that we've done. That's one thing that when we talk about trust, we can mm-hmm. trust totally that we are going to transition. You know? Right. And, um. There's one, la- we're probably towards the end of the, the uh, shoe, but there's something else that you've said that uh, I just love to just expand on it for a minute. It's one of those probably sound bite-ish kinds of things, but I love it anyhow, and it's about staying emotionally cool. I love that. So, uh, yeah, give us a little thing around staying emotionally cool. Wow. <laughs> you said that, okay? I did. I yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. This is the problem with being quoted. Yeah, right. It's one of those sound bites that I love. That's what I was saying before. That uh, I, I think, uh, well, it, it speaks to me because this is, you know, I can get hot. And uh, staying emotionally cool. And on the other side of things, I've noticed that I can get a little too emotionally cool as a defense mechanism. So I think it's it's something interesting for people. Well, I think in some ways, I think the, the coolness to me is the quality. Staying emotionally cool is to really allow myself to take refuge in my meditation practice. Mm. Perfect. Which really reminds me to come back again and again just to my inhalation and my exhalation and to realize that I can create tons of stories and get really worked up over what might be very painful, over what might be very sorrowful or joyful or exciting or whatever. But to me, about the coolness is just to also remember, ah, okay, (laughs) and this, Hmm. and this. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend uh, Ramdas used to say when he first came back in those lectures, which you were at some later on, and that too, it's okay, and that too. And that's a great mantra, by the way, everybody out there. Thank you so much, Koshin, Paley, Ellison. And uh, you have a wonderful book called Awake at the Bedside, everybody. That's something you can pick up and you can go through our mindpodnetwork.com and our Amazon portal. And uh, you also mentioned another book, which was a seminal book for all of us back in the day. 
Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi, and I highly recommend that to everybody out there. And also, Allen Ginsberg, who is so close to uh, to us, to all of us. Uh, my er, my first hero is Allen Ginsberg, okay? <laughs> he said, yeah, no, pot is great. It really opens you up. And I was like 14. I went, oh, great. I trust him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, lovely, oh, lovely. I'll oh, give us a a a, um, a URL so people can go. And we're we're going to put it up on the uh, on the website as well. Just so you can reach um, our work and our podcast at zencare.org. Zencare.org. Okay, perfect. And those of you who are in New York, by the way. Please go on down there and connect with uh, Koshin. And it is an opportunity, I'm sure, that he can lead you into uh, areas where you can do some seva, some service. And um, this is tremendous work you're doing, and I'm, I'm really happy to have you here with us. Well, it's such a joy to meet you, Raghu. <laughs> Thank you, Koshin. See everybody next week on Mind Rolling on the MindPod Network.